All right, everyone, let's find our seats. You guys get mad at me when I keep you late. You talk. Just goofing with you. All right. Well, again, happy Resurrection Day to everybody. If I didn't get to see you last week or see you Sunday, and hope you had a blessed time that day, really, just you and Jesus, you and the Lord, and your families, of course, and everything else that go with that. But um, it's all about him, isn't it? It's all about him. Well, tonight, uh, how many of you still kept your, uh, your original numbers outlines? We refer back to these every once in a while. Uh, I think everybody, everyone in this room is like, uh, so that answers that question. We go through the labor of creating these for you. Oh, we got one that has it. All right. Ding, ding, two. Two out of 50. All right. No. <laughs> so please, if you have your outlines, take it out. And for everyone else, uh, uh, just, yeah, just let me... Uh, yeah, you share with your rows or, or, or sides of the sanctuary. We're moving into the fourth section. The fourth section here, and I titled it, In the Wilderness, Learning from the Lord. It really is going to comprise of chapters 15 through 20. Chapters 15 through 20. And it's an interesting point because as we've been looking and on this journey in the book of Numbers, as we've been going, um, it seems like there's these just incidences that keep appearing. You know, they're over 38 years, and there's these incidents, they just keep appearing, and they're, it's like, out of 38 years, Lord, you could have filled so much, and you, you sort of drop these nuggets, these beautiful nuggets and lessons in there for us. And as we go through and study these, I, I don't think it's coincidence that the Holy Spirit led Moses to make sure these were kept in the Pentateuch here, that you and I would have a copy of these, because I think there's very much for us to learn today from these writings. I, I really do. And, and when it's, what's interesting is when you get to chapter 15, because we, we've read what's happened in 14, they, they had lied. Well, really, chapters 13 and 14, they had lied, you know, other than Caleb and Joshua. And they were given the punishment that they would not get to go into the promised land that way, but their next generation would. And so for 40 years or 38 really, years after that point, they were going to kind of wander in the wilderness. You talk about a wasted life. I hate to say it that way, but a, but a wasted life, a wasted journey that way. Well, God's turned them back to the, to the wilderness here, and these are somewhat silent years. I mean, again, 38 years, we only have so many of these nuggets and teachings out of these 38 years, and they're very specific. In chapter 33 of the book of Numbers, we're given characteristics right, of these years. You will find a log of their journeys in chapter 33 if you've read ahead. But again, you, some might say they're wasted years. And, and as we continue to read on, when we get to Joshua chapter 5, we'll get direct revelation from the Holy Spirit that part of the problem with these 38 years and these silent years is that they were not keeping the sacrifices. They were not keeping the ordinances of God. They didn't even circumcise their children. That next generation that inherits the promised land, as they go in there and Joshua has to deal with it, God deals with Joshua and saying, hey, these children haven't been circumcised. It's commanded by the covenant. And what was that covenant of circumcision really all about? It, it, we learn in the New Testament that it had everything to do with a circumcised heart, a surrendered heart. That's what, that's what it was always pointing to. And, you know, 
he will see that Amos chapter 5, verse 25, he too will refer back to these 40 years that they began to practice pagan worship. They began to worship the pagan idol of Molech and other pagan idols that way. And again, I think these lessons are very real for us today. And the reason I say that is because we're sojourners, right? We're, we're passing through. We're strangers to this world. I'd like to read you a quote from J. Vernon McGee, which I think sums it up. And then we'll begin in verse 1 after a moment of prayer. But J. Vernon McGee said, They can delay God's blessing, but they cannot destroy God's purpose. And how often is that true in our lives today, that when we walk contrary to the word of God, we can delay God's purpose and plan in our lives. But never do we eradicate his plan and purpose. He will always work it out in the believer because he's the one that brings sanctification. And it's his system of grace. Nothing that you and I can do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for that word, Lord, that you just gave us that those nuggets, Lord, because we, we all have moments, God, as you know, of wanderness, wilderness wanderings, Lord, if I could say it that way. Wanderness may be a better term for it, wandering aimlessly. But God, when, when we are away from you, Lord, we're empty. Lord, it is a barren land away from you. Jesus, thank you that you've come so that we don't have to wander any longer. Thank you that, Lord, you have established a way for us to worship and praise you. Lord, a way that we can spend eternity with you through your son, Jesus Christ. It's a narrow way, Lord, you tell us. But it's a beautiful way. Because it's not based on religion, it's based on relationship. God, thank you. Thank you for that gift. And Lord, as we read your word here tonight, Lord, open our eyes. As we look at the sacrifice and offerings that you desired, God, you are specific in the way you wanted to be worshipped. And today you've given us much of that as well. But Lord, we'll see that there's still presumptuous sin, Lord. There's still murmuring, there's still rebellion but you're still God. And nothing will ever change that. Nothing will ever hinder your purpose for humanity, Lord, to draw us all to you. We thank you for that, Jesus Christ. And we praise you now in your holy name, Jesus. And all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. So please open in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. And we'll begin with verse one here. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, saying to them, when you have come into the land, you are to inhabit. Now this must have been odd as God is speaking this to these children because a chapter ago, he said, you will not inherit the land. What's going on here? Well, much much what we see in the New Testament, the same way in sanctification and salvation. What God is showing us is that he's speaking to this future as it's already done. It's not something that has to be 
you know, somehow planned or drawn up. God has done the work. It's just a matter of time before that generation had passed away and that the new generation would go in. But, it, but as far as God sees it, it's done. Now, friends, let me point you to the New Testament covenant that you and I are under and understand that as well because he did something for you and I. He justified us. He sanctified us, right? Redeeming us, putting us in right relationship, doing the work in us, drawing us to him. And he's also glorified us. You may be sitting here saying, but I don't have that glorified body yet. And you'd be right. But in God's eyes, the work is done. There's nothing more that has to happen upon your journey and your walk with Christ. He has done it all. It's simply a matter of time till we pass off, whether it's through a rapture, the harpazo, or whether it's through death in which we'll be with him in a moment of time that we will have those glorified bodies that he's always promised us. He even went so far as to say, just in case you begin to doubt, just in case you begin to worry, he says, I'm going to send you a guarantee. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit as your down payment to the promise that I've given you so that you don't ever have to wonder You don't ever have to question or or walk in unbelief. He says, I want you to know now, once and for all, it's settled. That's what it is for the new believer in Christ. That's what it is for any believer in Christ, really. It's settled. Our account is paid in full. We're washed. We're cleansed. We're in right relationship with God. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We have a victory in Christ. And he wants us to walk as as our new identity, as new believers in that. Not to hold on to the past and look back and say, well, the old Moses was like this. No, that's not God's plan for your life. That's a defeatist attitude. That's ignoring the covenant in which God has established. Sure, we find ourselves in those moments of unbelief or doubt or insecurity, But that's not where God wants us to dwell. He wants us to have joy. He wants us to choose joy. He wants us to walk in happiness. Even in a world that's, quite honestly, topsy-turvy. Evil being called good and good being called evil, as it says in Isaiah. God looked at this children, these children. He says, when you've come into the land, you are to inhabit. It was done which I'm giving to you and make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow as a free will offering or in your appointed feasts to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd of the flock. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil. Did you catch that? A hin of oil. What is oil a picture of in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. He says, and oh, by the way, a covering, a covering of the Spirit of God in that. I like that. It can't be a sacrifice or brought before the Lord unless it's brought by the Spirit of God in you. 
And one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering you shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hin of oil. We see it again. And as a drink offering, you shall offer one-third of a hint of wine as a sweet aroma to the Lord. The wine in this, it, it, one of the few places, only three in all of the Bible, one of the few places where we speak, we see one speaking of joy. This joy with God, that's what this is speaking to. This, this offer of wine is a sweet aroma. It's speaking to joy. And when you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a peace offering to the Lord, then shall be offered with the young bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a half a hen of oil. And you shall bring as the drink offering a half a hen of wine as an offering made by fire with a sweet aroma to the Lord. You must bring the spirit and joy when you bring an offering to God. Is it spirit-led, and is there joy in your heart? Is there joy in your heart? Hmm. I like that God reminds us where it comes from. Reminds us what the recipe looks like. Thus it shall be done for each young bull, for each ram, for each lamb, for each young goat, according to the number that you have prepared, so you shall do with everyone according to their number. All who are native-born shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you, or whoever is among you throughout your generations, and will present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. Everyone. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. An ordinance forever throughout your generations, as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. So explain to me, how is it possible to be a generation forever if we're no longer under sacrificial system or ceremonial practices? Because what were the two main ingredients? We saw a hint of oil, and we saw wine as part of a sweet aroma. What is it that we're to bring? We're to be spirit-driven with joy. With joy. In everything that we do. We look at the New Covenant in the New Testament, even giving, right? How does he say it? We're to be hilarious givers. He tells it's joy. He always goes back to joy. It's it's what it should be. It's it's not out of legalism. It's not out of you have to do this, you have to do that. It's God wants nothing to do. He's just the blood of bulls and you know. And goats, he says, that, that never pleased me in the book of Hebrews. You're familiar with it. He says, that, that didn't please me. His son, Jesus, our Savior, that pleased him. Him being beaten and scourged, taking on the sin of the world, that pleased him. A suffering servant pleased our God, our Father, because it satisfied sin and the the judgment of sin for all of eternity. And what pleased him was that his son, Jesus Christ, went to that cross, not arguing with God, not fighting about it, but a willing servant with joy 
and spirit-driven. And if we can do that in our walk, we too fulfill the purpose of God's call in our lives. It's what it looks like. And whether it's the assembly or the stranger, it's the same thing. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. And again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. You go back and study that. Remember in Leviticus, we, you know, we, I went through it pretty quickly with us all. But I mean, next time around, you know, in seven years, as we rinse and repeat and we get through the whole Bible, Lord willing, you know, seven to ten years, if the Lord should tarry, I don't believe he would, but if he should tarry like that, we'll go through it again and we'll take a different rake through it. But, but I didn't go through the Greek enough with you there because, again, it was our first time going through it together as an assembly, as a group. But really the idea behind that is when he's doing the heave offering without being overly graphic for you, do you understand he's got the intestines in his hands and he's holding them up with blood and all and, and everything before him showing the, the, the con, you know, the, the, how do I put it? The consecration of what he has and the, the intimacy with the sacrificial offering. I don't know about you, but I'm, I, you know, you start to hear, aren't you glad you ate earlier, some of you? You start to think the blood, you know, praise the Lord, we don't have to do that anymore. Thank you, Jesus. But I mean, when we go through it next, we'll go into much more detail and you'll see the, the, the nth degree that God is drawing us of, of how we were to be relational in that and how it, had, it was to impact our lives. That the sacrifice was to mean something. It was to be full of joy and it was to be spirit-driven. It wasn't an afterthought. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your, your ground meal as a heave offering. As a heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you offer it up. Of the first of your ground meal, you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. Now we're going to move into this section here. And as I mentioned, chapter 15 through 20 is the fourth section of this book. There's only five sections, really, if you compartmentalize it that way. And now we're going to be going again through these, these what are going to seem like instances that God is sort of just placing in front of us to learn. So the first thing that we see in the offering and, and what we just took in verse, you know, really 1 through 21 is that we're to have joy and we're to be spirit driven in all of our dealings, in all of our sacrifice and everything that we bring. That's, that's for the new covenant believer. Obviously, we're not out there sacrificing animals. We're not bringing hints of oil that way. But for you and I, in all that we do unto the Lord, we're to bring that joy and we're to be spirit driven. For without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing good of ourselves. That's, that's if I had to summation, you know, put a summation for you, a summary around that. Now we're going to look at an unintentional sin, and then he's going to go into presumptuous sin. So he's going to break this next, really, half of uh, chapter 15 up into two main areas. What happens with presumptuous sin? You know, what, what does that mean? You've, maybe you've heard me mention it before. I referenced it when we were in Leviticus. There was no response for God for a sacrificial offering for presumptuous sin. If you intentionally rejected God, intentionally, there was no offering made for you for that. You were to be cast out. That's, that's heavy. It, it, think of those today that reject Jesus Christ. 
they will not be able to enter in. They're cast into outer, what's he say? Darkness. That's not something Jesus used to, in some way, persuade people to come to heaven. No, he expressed his unconditional love for that. But he presented them the reality of the gospel, which is there is a heaven and there is a hell. And Jesus doesn't desire that anyone go to hell. It's only a rejecting heart that provides no sacrifice for it. That's why this unpardonable sin has no response because it's no different from this passage we're going to be reading here. There is no way for those that reject Messiah, those that reject Jesus, there is no other way. There is no other sacrifice. Just as he said it here, it's foundational. But first he starts with unintentional sin. If you sin unintentionally and do not observe all of these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it will be, if it is unintentionally committed without the knowledge of the congregation. So he's still saying there's still something to be said, even sin, even if you didn't know that you did it, there's still consequence to that and there's still a repentance, not an I'm sorry you understand there's a difference between sorrow or sorry for something and true repentance, a turning away from it. He says, without the knowledge of the congregation that the whole congregation shall offer one young bull, sin affects everyone. As a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance. And one kid of the goats as a sin offering. Notice that he didn't say, well, if you didn't know you were doing it, you're good. Just keep going. No, there was still a sacrifice required, right? There was still something that they had to do when they came to the knowledge that they had done what? Committed a sin. But up until that point when they didn't know. Well, now fast forward under the new covenant, you and I certainly were not sacrificing the blood of bull and goats any longer. Ceremonial practices. What, what happens in our lives We've been living a life. Maybe we get saved. Maybe even as we're saved, we're growing. We're learning the Bible. Maybe it's the first time we've gone through the entire word of God, line by line and verse by verse. Maybe we've never done that. Maybe our experience has been sort of topical or systematic, if you understand what I mean by that. You know, here or there. And so we kind of been putting pieces together in our lives, never really having a comprehensive, you know, if I can say it that way, study of all of the word. And maybe as we read through the Bible, we start to realize, oh my, I didn't realize I, I was doing certain things or, or I was thinking of certain way that, that clearly is not in the will of the Lord. It, it, it happens to believers and unbelievers alike, but believers, because as we study, sometimes we might even forget or, or, or for a lot of reasons, spiritual warfare, compromise, what have you. And we start to realize, oh my, here I am. And now I'm faced with a situation because I'm reading something in the Word of God and, cl and it's clearly contrary to the way I'm living. What do I do? Well, I think what we learn here through sacrifice is what? He says, even if it's unintentional, what do you do? You repent and you turn to Jesus and you do what? You ask for forgiveness and you're restored in right relationship because the sacrifice has been paid 
at Calvary on the cross. But it still requires an intentional, willing, honest, sober heart to repent. God, forgive me for what I've done. We don't know at all, do we? We're learning our walk and our faith. Nobody's arrived. Nobody's perfect. We're learning what it is to be more like Jesus every day. And he does that work in us. And there's no coincidence that when we come in and we're reading the word and we're sitting in those seats and some word just comes across. And maybe, you know, sometimes people come up to me afterwards, Pastor, that was a word. Man, I, I, how did you know I was going? Th-? And, and I look at him quite honestly. I did. I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you mean at this moment. No, no, this is the word that I was just talking with somebody about this very thing. And I think, praise the Lord. God used that to confirm something in your life, and he was, he was showing you something. And then I have others that come up, and, and, and now I, you know, I don't understand why. You know, why would God? And, and it's great. I love it. You know, we sit down, and we talk, and we pour over the Scripture. Um, and it's gentle. It's gentle, and it should be peaceable. It shouldn't be an argument. It should be gentle and peaceable. It should be, it should be beautiful in how the Holy Spirit works. He corrects. He doesn't, he doesn't rob you, you know? He doesn't hold you at gunpoint. He's gentle. But he comes right in there and he lays the truth and he removes the sin and he leaves everything else intact. Beautiful surgeon, the Holy Spirit is. Jesus Christ is a beautiful surgeon. Well, he goes through and he, he continues to say, look, it's grain offering, it's drink offering, according to the ordinance. One kid of the goats is a sin offering, because it is sin. So the priest shall make an atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven them, for it was unintentional. They shall bring their offering, and an offering made by fire, to the Lord for their sin offering, before the Lord for their unintended sin. Please underline, they were forgiven, because that hasn't changed. When we go to Jesus and we repent, we are forgiven This is an ordinance and a statute set up as a promise from Jesus, from God directly. When we repent and we go to God, we're forgiven. As far as the east is from the west. Verse 26, it shall be forgiven the whole congregation to the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them because all the people did it unintentionally. And if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in the first year as a sin offering. So the priest shall make an atonement for the person who sins unintentionally when he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make an atonement for him. And it shall be forgiven him. Jesus is our atonement. You shall have only one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native-born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who who dwells among you. You see this? It doesn't matter, Jew or Gentile alike. There's one way and only one way. And God has provided that way, Jesus Christ. But the person, there's a conjunction there at the beginning of verse 30. You'll notice that conjunction, but circle that. The person who does anything presumptuously, that means willfully sinning, not accidental. Okay? Whether he is a native born or a stranger, the one that brings reproach to the Lord 
and he shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments that the person shall be completely cut off and his guilt shall be upon him. Notice that there is no, he's forgiven eventually. Notice there is no sin offering or something that can be done. There is nothing that can be done with presumptuous sin. Now, what if somebody is in presumptuous sin, but then comes to the point of not understanding why? Maybe they weren't walking with the Lord at the time, or maybe they were backslidden, or maybe, you know, a lot of reasons. But they now come to the revelation of, oh my, I've been really contrary to God's spirit. But their heart isn't hardened, and they turn to God, and they repent. Is that now presumptuous? No, it's no longer presumptuous, because presumptuous, if you look at the word and you translate it in the Hebrew, it's a willful in other words, it's a kind of like you're standing before God going, you can't make me do it. It's that kind of a challenge to God, the Father, that way. That's, that's what's implied. It's willful. But if you come to God, the Father, Lord, I don't know what I was thinking. Lord, forgive me. Well, that's no longer presumptuous now. Now you've humbled your heart and you've come to the Lord, and now it's unintentional. Lord God, I don't know what I was doing back there. I don't know why I was, I was so hard-hearted, Lord. Forgive me. And he says, right then and there, it's done. For the, for, the, for the believer in Christ, it's over. It's done. And Romans 8, 1 confirms that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's covered. The sin is covered. It's removed forever. To be more specific than covering. I, I couldn't think of a greater gift that God could give us. You see, why is this important? Because when you get to your New Testament, as we read in the New Testament, we're, we've gone through the Gospels, and many times it says, well, what about, and it uses the idea of presumptuous sin, like I mentioned about the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. Have you heard that, that term for it? And what is the sin of the unpardonable, right? Or what is the unpardonable sin, maybe better put? It's the denying of Jesus, right? Because if you read it, it's really the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Let me help you understand that quite simply. What does the Holy Spirit testify to? To Jesus Christ as Lord. So when you reject Jesus Christ, you've just blasphemed. What does the word blaspheme mean? Even from the Hebrews, we looked at that term. It means a cutting. It means a tearing, a cutting, a cutting of one's name, a cutting of one's action. So what you've done is you've just cut God that way. That's, it's, it's an aggressive you know, action that you've taken towards God. Well, when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you've basically denied the promise, the measure of faith that God has given every believer in Christ. And now, and before they even came to Christ, every single belief, you know, creation, every, uh, it says in Romans chapter one and two, creation testifies. It says that our conscience bears witness. We read in other New Testament passages about how everyone was given a measure of faith. Romans also speaks to that in later chapters. Why does he tell us all this? Because everybody has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, right? But you can sear the Holy Spirit by rejecting him, by turning around and saying, no, no, no. And when you do that, there comes a point where then you have rejected Jesus Christ. Now, when is that point? Right before your last breath. Because up until your last breath, you have every opportunity to do what? repent and turn to Jesus and cry out to him and ask him to be your Lord and Savior instead of rejecting Jesus. Now, maybe I'm looking at all of you and your believers in Christ here, but there's somebody that's going to hear this word. 
There's somebody that's going to be driving in a car somewhere or somebody that's going to listen to this on the website and they've been wrestling with this their whole lives. Maybe they've had guilt. Maybe they've wondered, Lord, am I really saved? Lord, I did a lot of bad things in my life. I denied you before. At one time, I was an atheist. At one time, I was contrary to the way that you prescribed in your word. Did I commit the unpardonable sin? And maybe that's what they're wondering. And I want to give that person comfort right now as we read in the Old Testament, just as God says there's unintentional and there's presumptuous, if there's a point at which you humble your heart and repent and turn towards Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will be forgiven. And it's settled. You're not guilty of the unpardonable sin. It's until you go to that last breath and you still reject Jesus. At that point, it's not in the next life in eternity that you're going to be able to change your mind. It's an everlasting decision up until that point of your last breath. Which is why when someone's dying, we're the last two things to fail, right? The heart keeps beating, right? But the heart can grow weak. The oxygen in the lungs. But you know what keeps the brain? Help. Jesus. Whatever it is. To cry out, just to say I mean, Peter, when he was on the water, he didn't have a magnificent prayer as he was sinking in unbelief. He just said, help me. There wasn't some magnificent dance because it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And Jesus knows in your heart when you cry out and say, yes, Lord, I believe you are my Lord and Savior. And you will be with him for eternity. But the opposite also must be true. That if you deny him, you will spend eternity separated from him, which is your desire anyway, because that's what you really wanted. But I assure you, you don't want that. To meet with the God that created everything and the love he has for you and to stand before him, you're not going to look at him and go, I hate you. You're going to look at him and you're going to weep. And you're going to go, why did I harden my heart? I was so foolish. Friends, nobody has to make that decision. Nobody has to stand before Jesus as a fool. It just requires humility. It just requires with a spirit that believes and a mouth that's willing to confess, Jesus is Lord. Get the word out. It's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Get the word out. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained that they, what they should do to him. This is the third time, if you've been keeping track with us, that Moses is in a situation a predicament, and he doesn't know what to do. And every single time he says, wait, I need to hear from God. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 12 was the first time. Numbers chapter 9, verse 8 was the second time. And here we find the third time. 
where he stands and he says, wait, hold on. What wisdom for all of us here. So they put him under guard because it had not been explained. And then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. What, had, what sin did he commit? He worked on the Sabbath. Now remember, Old Testament, not New Testament, right? Shabbat law, we don't have the Shabbat law today because if you start to apply the Shabbat law, you have to apply all of them. You can't pick and choose which ones you... God doesn't do it, and we shouldn't do it. You can't do that. Pardon me. Paul says you can do it. You shouldn't do it. That's Paul's guidance, right? Romans 14. You know, you can, don't, right? Because where do you draw the line of legalism? What's he warning here, though? It's just like anything. It should always be spirit-driven. It should be joy. If you're doing those things unto God, you won't have to have your arm twisted. It doesn't have to be a law that way. You'll want to not forsake the gathering of the saints, as it says in Hebrews. You'll want to come to church. You'll want to learn. But here this man is he's doing something contrary. And this, this may seem like a very severe punishment. I mean, it's, it's capital punishment, isn't it? I mean, you know, when, the, when you ask, does the Bible ever condone capital punishment? Yes. Yes, it does. Not for everything, by the way. But it, but it does. We, we can't deny that. Capital punishment is in the Bible. Now, what I want you to think about is what do you deserve today, each and every one of us, right? And then I want you to think about what Jesus did on Calvary because that's where he paid it all. That's why we're no longer stoned and put to death for this crime of forsaking a Shabbat or the Sabbath because Jesus Christ paid it all. And he is the Lord of the what? The Sabbath. So as the Lord commanded Moses, and again, I think this is important. This is what it means when we say Jesus died for us. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones and he died. Why did everybody and why did God command everybody to partake in it? Because he committed offense against God. And everybody knows that sin begets sin or it permeates. And that if one person would have condoned or compromised, they would have found themselves slowly but surely continuing to compromise. And God says, no. Sin is sin. You know? It's, it's a difficult matter, church discipline and other things like that and discipline in your own homes and lives when, you know, we'll, we'll be in the book of Corinthians pretty soon. I think we have four or five more studies in the book of Romans. And then we're going to be in the book of Corinthians and we're going to go through a lot. I mean, the church of Corinth. Oh my. Well, actually, it's not all that different than today, come to think about it. But, but oh my. I mean, the wickedness that was going on within the church, let alone outside the church, okay? And when we study that, I mean, it, God is very clear. Chapter 5 and 6 are very difficult chapters in, the, in, in 1 Corinthians because he tells us as believers how we're to behave when, when others, you know, gather in sin a certain way. We're, to, we're, to, we're not to ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. 
were to come together, if we really love that individual and were to say, you're living contrary to the scriptures, how, you know, what are you going to do about that? You know, we're not to pretend we're not to, we're not to pretend that's not sin. We'll talk more about that when we get there. We don't have enough time tonight, but, but I think it's safe to say that what we see God instituting here is a practice from allowing the individual to go out and wander into pagan practices like idolatry. He's trying to protect them from disobeying God's commandments and ordinances. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, and here we find another one of those planted right there. You, know, you can't necessarily connect them all, but, but we see one more dropped in here, but it speaks to our walk. It speaks to our walk, and it's fitting really at the end of chapter 15 that he would draw us there because he's, he's covered a lot of ground uh, very much for us today. Um, but now he's going to speak to these tassels that were, are to remind them, and there's going to be a thread of blue. And what does the color blue represent in Scripture? heaven. And so the idea behind that is, is do we have that in our lives? Is our walk heavenly? Are we walking holy and circumspect as though we were in heaven and living according to God's commandments and statutes? So read it within that context of understanding what blue represents. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a blue thread on the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them because what is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. And what's bound in heaven will be bound on earth, right? And that you may not follow the harlotry, there it is, to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. He's saying, look, heavenly people walk according to God's work, word, excuse me, circumspectly, right? We walk according to God's word on the earth circumspectly. You know, do you have a border of blue in your hearts? Do you have a border of blue in the way that you're walking today? And that you may remember and do all that my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. He's very clear here. Now, as we moved into chapter 16, chapter 16 through 19 have four specific incidences. I'm going to call those, just like I've been saying, those dropped in incidences. Sort of way, it's the best way I can describe to you what, what's been going on. Now, chapter 16 through 19. We're going to see four of them, but they all concern the priesthood. These are all going to be focused on the priesthood, these next four, okay? And it's interesting because we're going to see for the fifth time, if you've been counting, for the fifth time, the people are going to murmur and complain, right? Right in chapter 16. How long have they been out of Egypt at this point? Maybe a year, a year and a half? Five times. Just five times. Think about that for a minute. How many times have we complained since we got saved? And do we look back to our Egypt? God has delivered us from Egypt, but he's still doing what? He's taking the Egypt out of the man. He's taking the sin out of the man and the woman that desires to chase after it. You see, it's sanctification. Now, Korah, 
Now, Korah was a prominent leader. I mean, here he is. He's got a band of 250 guys. They're going to raise up with him. They're all leaders. Korah is very prominent. This wasn't just somebody rogue. This is like the assistant pastor, okay? This is somebody pretty high up in the echelon here. He's one of the sons of Levi, so he's a Levite. They had been given a specific calling. They had been redeemed by God, given to Aaron and his sons for the priestly duties to help out with the tabernacle and all of that dedicated unto this. And here we find Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, with Dathan, or Dathan. Here's another guy. Okay, so you got Korah and you got Dathan. And Ibrahim, that's the third one. Those are the three, if you want to kind of group them, the three buddies that are all together. They're going to raise this, this coup or mob against creating division, which will start... Um, here. The sons of Elab, on the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel. Some, listen to who he takes, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation. And it says here, men of renown. These were highly regarded men, men that would have been close to Moses. Moses's leadership. These were, you know, Korah and um, Dathan and Ibram, these, these are the assistant pastors under the senior pastor. If I can just kind of give you the, the image in our 21st century church today. These guys are close, close to Moses. They, they understand the, they might have even been the ones that were up near the, remember when he brought the 50 or the, up to the top near Mount, Mount, um, uh, Mount Zion, when he was going up to the top and he was giving the word, but then they had to stay down. They couldn't go all the way. These men might have been there. These might have been some of those men that went up, that heard God orally speak, that maybe at a distance could see, you know, God's presence, okay? These are not just, these are men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves. That's sort of a Hebrew idiom of saying, you know, you're, you're getting too big for your britches, Moses, you, 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 think, you think, Moses, you're the only guy. Is this a lie? Moses is referred to in the Bible as one of the most meek men that walk the earth. Moses was no way boastful. If Moses was, if we were going to convict Moses of any sin, what would be a sin of? Anger. Anger is something Moses dealt with. But meekness? Pride? No, no, no. Moses was a meek man. One of the most meek men to ever walk the earth, the Bible tells us. So this is a lie. This is a lie. But we don't know exactly why. We're going to find out here what their accusation, the accusation of the mob is here. But this is a lie. He says, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy. Every one of them. So now he looks to all the two to three million and he's playing to them. Hey, you're all doing great. You know, that whole, uh, you know, sin thing. Well, you know, maybe it's up for, um, you know, interpretation. You know, maybe we can do it a different way in the church. I, I, no. I can give you specific examples. Some of you may not think this happens today. It does. It happens. Because of envy, because of jealousy, because of all different kinds of reasons. Pride. Every one of them and the Lord is among them. So he says, you take too much upon yourselves for the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? 
That's their, angry, that's their accusation. You have exalted yourself, Moses. Moses never did that. God exalted Moses. Moses didn't exalt himself. God called Moses. This is important because today we see the temptation for this. And it still lurks in the heart of man through jealousy and pride. So when Moses heard it, Moses anger was aroused and he went out and he wiped them out. No, that's what man would do. But what does God do in this man's heart? Because remember, he's been teaching Moses to intercede for the people. Remember in chapter uh, 14, he wanted to wipe them all out and start again. The second time God had suggested that to Moses, hey, I'll give you new people. They won't be like this people. We'll start all over. It'll be great. But God didn't really want that. He was drawing Moses' heart out. Because Moses was to be leading the congregation. He was to be, leading, he was to be the, the under rower, the under shepherd that way. And he was to be a disciple maker. And he was to teach them to be disciple makers. So that they would stand out and be different against the other nations that were in the land. That they would be different and draw them to God. So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Again, a beautiful picture of humility. And he spoke to Korah and all his com company saying, tomorrow morning. The Lord will show who it is, who is his and who is holy and who will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chose, chooses, he will cause to come near to him. He says, let's let God handle this. He says, I don't need to defend myself. I know what God's called me to do. I'll let the Lord handle this. The Lord deal with you. That's what he says. It's, it's humble. He's not in any way exhorting his power which is how we know it's a lie. It was a lie what Korah was up to. Do this. Take censers. Now, in your mind, you should be thinking, we've read about this already. Do you remember back Nadab and Abihu? And they took censers of what? Profane fire. Because they had been, they decided they were going to go into the Holy of Holies and they were going to worship God the way they wanted to worship him. And they were going to turn around and they were going to desire this place of esteem that God had not given to them. But was really for Aaron, the high priest, that was only to go in once, well, twice, once a year for, you know, two times, once for the, himself and then the people. Right? So, so we clearly see this. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all your company. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. In other words, if it's profane fire, if your worship, if this is the Lord and you're doing this with the right heart, God will judge this. But if not, this is profane fire again. And what happened last time with the profane fire for Nabab and Ihu? Death. Right? They, they had to know this was what was happening, when, which, which makes you wonder about Korah for a moment. He actually convinced himself he was right. He actually convinced himself he might have been hearing from the Lord. So much so that he already knew what was going to happen when you take profane fire, and he thought, I'll take a censer. And you know, not only that, but I'll endanger these 250 other people. I'll take these other 250 people and I'll have them take the censers too and we'll all light fire because I'm that confident. Friends, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you follow. Follow Jesus. 
He says, do this, take censers, quarrel all your company, put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the holy one, the one set apart. What's that mean? Holy, purified, set apart under this calling of, you know, an under shepherd, a pastor, what have you. You shall take, you take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. This is what God had spoken to Moses. Moses begins to recognize, because remember, he got down on his knees at first, and he begins to call out to the Lord, okay, Lord, what's going on? And then, you know, he says, okay, take the fire, because God must have spoke this to him. So Moses recognizes its jealousy here. Then Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi. Again, this is all from God, not from man. It is a small thing to you that God, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to serve them. That is one of the reasons we honor what the book of Titus says, the epistle, the letter of Titus that way. That's why we honor 1 Timothy 3 in this church. We are slow to lay hands on an individual. There are a lot of talented, uh, godly equipped men in this fellowship and women and, and different, but we are slow to lay hands on anybody lest they be filled with pride like the devil, it says. Because that was the sin of Korah. He was full of pride. We are slow. We want to protect them. We Certainly, we could always look back and go, we could use more help. I don't think there's a church out there. I'll speak of Calvary Chapel. I can't speak of other churches. I don't think there's a Calvary Chapel out there that's not going, man, we could use more help because folks are coming in. They want the word. There's discipleship, you know. But we're slow to do that. We're slow to lay hands on somebody like that. Because what ends up happening is they can be filled with pride and you can ruin a guy. You could have a guy that the Lord has got to call you, be gifted as all get out, but you put him in a place that he's not ready for and you begin to see the pride. Real love is to take that guy and say, rest for a little bit. It doesn't mean the guy's done. If, if Korah would have responded with the right heart and humility, God could have used Korah and maybe had raised him up to that position that he was so desiring in his heart, it's good to desire the office of a bishop, 1 Timothy 3. It's nothing wrong with having a heart's desire for that. But God's timing and God's will is everything. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful. So he says, it is a small thing. He goes, you know, he had dedicated you. He had given you a little authority, Cora. It's gone to your head. It's gone to your head. And to stand before the congregation to serve them that has been brought you near to himself and you shall all, and you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi with you, and you shall see, you are seeking the priesthood also. In other words, you're wanting more than what God's called you to. God may have called you to this, but you're wanting more than that. We all have to be careful of that. We all have to be careful of that. Where God places us, we need to find contentment in that because God has put us there. And, and, and we shouldn't be wrestling with God. Well, Lord, I should be the pastor, you know? I, I assure you, I probably have in this fellowship, whether they vocalized it or not, 20 guys that are convinced that they should be up here and it's time for me to retire. Oh, I'm, I, you laugh. I, I don't laugh because... Because the Lord reveals things. He shows hearts to me. He shows me that. I don't say a word. 
I don't say a word. I just pray. I just pray. It's common in ministry. I tell you what. You let them serve two weeks in the role, and they find out it's more about, it's five minutes of it. You spend you know, your week preparing a little bit for this. This is what, an hour? This is 5% of what you do in ministry is what you see up here before you all. The other 95% is all centered on prayer and people and discipleship and counseling and everything that goes into that. But they don't see that. People think when they leave and they go to their jobs that like, we're just, I don't know what they think we're doing here. I don't know if they think we're just sitting in chairs, just like waiting around for them to come back in. You know, I don't know. But I, I say this laughing because honestly, some people really don't know how much work goes on. Tammy Walt, you know, Tammy and the, uh, you know, the elders, Steve and how you guys don't, I don't look, I don't want to ever draw attention to anybody, but he's going out and meeting with people after hours. He's lucky if he's home one night a week. Most of you don't know that. One night a week, he's probably, because he's either got to go to medical visits or he's, he's going to have lunch with people or dinners with people because they're working too. You know, Cindy and, you know, she comes in for one day, you know, and she's trying to, and she's got to take care of my, you get my point? There's all of these things going on. Pastor Bill's everywhere trying to run the day-to-day for the church. And he's got this crazy senior pastor who just keeps throwing stuff on his lap and, you know, just keeps doing that. And he just keeps going, yes, Jesus, praise the Lord. I love you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. It's the only thing that keeps him sane. There's so many people in this church doing things on a weekly basis. I look at some of you in the eyes and nobody else needs to know what you do. You put in 20 hours a week whether it's managing books, whether it's figuring out the financials, whether giving, you guys are all doing something in this fellowship. And if you're not, ask your question, why? Is this your home? Is this where you're to serve? Maybe God's called you to be a prayer warrior here. You know, maybe the best place you can be is on your knees. Maybe you're here to teach. Maybe God's called you into a teaching ministry. Maybe God's called you into worship ministry. I, I, I don't know all the things. I mean, it takes so many hands and feet to do what we do here. I just know this, that when God moves on the heart and draws somebody up to a place of favor to serve, we need to pray for that person. We need to pray for our teachers, the teachers in the children's ministry that are faithful week and week. You have no idea the preparation that goes into that and the hearts that they have for these children. They love these kids. They die for these kids. They want them to know Jesus. Pray, pray, please pray. Spurgeon said, you want to know where the fire is in this church? He says, you go down to the basement, and it's where we got 600 people on their knees praying. That's the furnace. Because it's the Holy Spirit. You want to know what the power behind the church is? All of you, the prayer warriors, week in, week out, before I ever step behind this pulpit, Pastor Bill has a group of people praying in an office in the morning. I pray to God you'll come early and join him. I wish we had so many people coming in 20 minutes early to pray like that. There's not even room in the office anymore. We got to get a basement too. We'll dig one. Because that's where the furnace is. You get my point? 
We need that kind of fervent prayer today. We want revival. Let's start acting like it. He says, you're going to seek the priesthood also. Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abram, the sons of Elab. But they said, we're not going to come up. As though they're going to ignore God's judgment. You know, no, no, we don't. We... It's a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you should keep acting like a prince over us. That's the accusation they make against him. Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey. Wait a minute. God didn't bring you into that land because of the hardness of your heart. Because of the judgment of your sin. Because you got behind 10 men that lied about what they saw when they went to spy out the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, only two men, Joshua and Caleb. And they're the only two that won't inherit it. Don't, don't blame man, you know, for God's decision. And don't, you know, take that up with God. Moreover, you not brought us in this land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance in the fields of vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord. You and they as we, as well as Aaron, let each take his censer and put his incense in it. And each of you bring his censer before the Lord. 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer, so every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid an incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Koath, or Korah excuse me, gathered together the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle meeting. Then the glory. You're going to see this over and over again. Then the glory of the Lord. Then the glory of the Lord. He appeared to all the congregation, right? So they went from complaining to rebellion. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. That's heavy, man. Then they fell on their faces and said, O oh God, the God of the spirits of all the flesh, shall one man sin, and you be angry with the congregation? Even though they were all gathered with them. So Lord, isn't that funny? You think everybody's with you until they're like, I ain't with him. Those 250, they're on their own, man. And even even Cor and his remember he had his two buddies there. They're like, I ain't coming up. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abram." Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, and watch how Moses intercedes for the people here. Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of their tents, nothing of theirs, excuse me, lest you be consumed in all of their sins. Have nothing to do with them. They have made their choice. You have to let them go. That's hard, isn't it? That's hard. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Ibrahim. And Dathan and Abram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. It's so hard to watch when a man brings sin into the home. 
and it wrecks the whole family. The wife and the little children and everybody is corrupted and by this sin. It's so difficult to watch. It breaks my heart. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them to my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing on the earth and opens its mouth and swallows them up, what does that sound like he's doing? He says, if the Lord opens it up, what's he, what's he talking about? If you took a line and you drew it in front of you and you separate it, what do we call that? A divide. A divide. What was Korah trying to do with Dathan and Abram? Dividing the people. God used the very judgment on Korah, Dathan, and Abram, the very judgment for what they were trying to do to the congregation of Israel and the church. They were trying to divide them. And God says, you want to divide? I'll show you what a divide looks like. And he creates a divide of the land. But if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all, the belong, with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart, divided under them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, all the men with Korah and with all their goods. So they all, so they and all those with them went down and live into the pit. The earth closed, closed over them, and they and they perished from among the assembly. Then all of Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, "Let the earth swallow us up also." And fire came out from the Lord and consumed two hundred and fifty men who were doing what? Offering incense. What do we call that? Profane fire. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to pick up the censers out of the blaze, for they are holy. So just think about that. He says, Go ahead. They won't be destroyed and all of that. He says, I'm going to use this as a memorial. You will remember this when you come against God and his people. This is what he's saying. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Teleazar, the son of Aaron, his priest, to pick up the censers out of the blaze, for though they are holy, and they're scattered the fire a distance away. Then the censers of these men who sinned against their own souls, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, because they presented them before the Lord. Therefore they are holy, and they are, shall be a sign to the children of Israel. Incredibly humbling. I read this every time, and I am humbled by this. I'm humbled by this. You know, I think of my pastor. I was always accountable to my pastor. I always, to this day, I, I talk to him, if not weekly, bi-weekly. Because it's all about relationship and accountability. And I want to be accountable. I don't ever want to get lost in a lone ranger or a cowboy out there. I want accountability. And we, as Calvary Chapel senior pastors in this area, we just met, I think it was yesterday, we get together, four or five of us, six of us, from all the Calvary chapels, and we come together, just senior pastors, and we pray. We pray humility and meekness. We pray for the flock, for all of you, 
But we pray for the right hearts and that God would show us that we ourselves don't offer profane fire. It's a sobering thing and it can happen to anybody. It just humbles me. So Eleazar, the priest, took the bronze censers, which those who burned up and presented, and they were hammered out as a covering on the altar. Can you imagine walking into the fire to go get those? I don't want that job. And yet God allowed them to go through that fire and not be burned. We don't read how they got burned at all. They were protected by God because they were following God. Just think about that. When you follow God, God will lead you and protect you when you're in obedience. I like that. To be a memorial to the children of Israel that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord that he might not become like Korah and his companions just as the Lord had said to him through Moses. I'd like to just spend a few minutes and we'll close this chapter up. Another isolated incident here. On the next day, so this is only 24 hours later, okay? It shouldn't take us more than, I don't know, five minutes or less to close this. It's just an isolated instance right to the point, and not a lot of exegesis needed on this. It's the next day. They just witnessed what they witnessed and how quick they forgot. And God said, remember, and he even made a memorial. All the congregation of the children of Israel did what? Complained. Sixth time against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned, to, they turned toward the tabernacle meeting, and suddenly the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. We see the glory of the Lord appearing again. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Can you imagine you're hearing this? You know, what, what's your response? Moses, you know, Moses, say what you said last. Help us. You know, I mean, here they are again, right? They find themselves in this. So Moses said to Aaron, and he, he, he acts quickly here. He acts quickly. Take a censer and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense in it. Notice this is not profane fire. And take it quickly to the congregation and make an atonement for them. For the wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living. So the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700. Can you imagine if he did not act quickly? As he ran out there, if he did not act quickly, a church of two to three million besides those who died in the Korah incident. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle meeting for the plague had stopped. Friends, I would like you to stand and we're going to close in prayer, but I want to bring this all together here in 30 seconds for you. We had a plague that was going to consume every one of us. And the fire was burning of God's wrath and it was coming on every one of us here. And we had someone that went and stood in the middle of that fire with a, with a censer that was not profane. It was holy and set apart. And it was by God. And he interceded for the people as Moses interceded. And that's the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was the one that ran out. And he was the one that stood in the middle for you and I 
to stop that fire from consuming us for what we deserved because we are a people of murmuring. But through God's love and mercy, he spared us from the wrath. And he wants to do that for every single person. Not one person needs to go through that great tribulation that begins in Revelation chapter 6. Not one person today needs to go through the great tribulation. We can all be raptured out of here. Harpazo in the Greek. But it's a choice. Will you call on the name of Jesus Christ? Will you believe and will you leave the consequences to God? Amen? Let's stand and pray. Go ahead and read chapter 17 and 18 for next week. I pray that you are reading this ahead of time and that you're letting, you're marinating it, you know, letting it marinate in your heart and meditate on it. Come in here ready. Come in here ready to hear what the Spirit has to say. Father, thank you again, Lord, for your holy word. Lord, we are your humble, meek servants, God. We live to serve you and you alone. Thank you, Jesus, that you have protected us from that wrath of fire. Thank you, God, that you said the church is not given unto wrath. Jesus, we know what we deserve. Thank you for the favor. Thank you for the grace, Lord, grace that you've bestowed on us. Lord, we never want to take it for granted. And Lord, we never want to offer profane fire to ever make an assumption or presumption. Lord, protect us from ever presuming against you, God, from ever coming to you in a way that would be profane worship. Lord, when we come to you, let it be filled with your spirit and joy. We choose joy, Lord. God, thank you for blessing this time here tonight. Send us to our homes, Lord. Give us travel mercies. Allow us to waken tomorrow renewed and ready for the rest of the week ahead. Lord, I pray that you'd even begin already to pray for the ladies that... Um, some of the ladies are going to go away um, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And then later on, later in the week, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, or Saturday and Sunday, Lord, for the Women's Conference. God, I just pray you go before these ladies even right now. Prepare their hearts to hear what your Spirit has to say. Draw these ladies together, Lord. Allow them to encourage each other, iron sharpening iron. Allow them to be one. One in you, Jesus. I pray and we ask all these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Bless us here tonight. Amen. God bless you all. I love you all. Have a good evening.